0: Talking about it.
1: This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. This is Hamilton Today on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson on this Friday before a long weekend. The applause is for the Friday before the long weekend, not for who's hosting, I assure you. Friday before a long weekend, there is no better sentence or phrase out there. I'm telling you, and you know this. You may have already checked out. It's okay. We understand. Thanks for being here. We have got a full Thanksgiving Day show that will be every bit as mind-consuming as the debate about whether it should be turkey or ham. Is it turkey or is it ham? Will Will's back at the station. Will is it
2: turkey or is it ham? Uh, it's got to be turkey for me I personally. That... I'm not giving. I'm not giving an order to the listener. I'm not deciding for them. So you're not. You're not hamist. No, I'm not ham. And in fact, if you're offering me turkey and ham, I'll take them both. But if I got to choose, turkey first. See, I think this should have maybe
1: been our poll question of the day today. However, there's another great poll question of the day. I want people to go to Twitter and vote on. Trick or treating is going to be allowed this Halloween, but are you comfortable with children going door to door? Yes or no? That is on Twitter. You can vote there. We would love to have your thoughts on that one. Will is back at the home office. He is pressing the buttons and pushing dials and yanking on levers and putting coal in the oven or whatever else it takes to keep us on the air. Will, trick-or-treating, did you have any tricks? And I don't mean like at door-to-door. Did you have any secret things you did to enhance the quality and quantity of the haul you would get when you were a kid going door-to-door?
2: Door. Oh, yeah, 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 uh, so when I was a kid over a course of a few different, uh, Halloweens, I started, uh, paying attention to which houses people tended to skip, um, either for various reasons, um, one of them being, for example, and this was the house that I kind of noted first of all, my friend's, uh, grandmother, she had this house, But she always gave out, uh, along with candies, she also maybe sometimes had pastries. She was very old school. Uh, She'd have uh, Italian pastries, things like that, all sorts of great stuff. But, like, she had the typical witch house. She's like kids would kind of skip her house. And I realized it was like, I knew her. That's just, that's just Dana's Nona Rosa. But no, I realized, oh yeah, other kids in the neighborhood are kind of scared of her house. So she always had a bigger haul. And then I started Perfect. to pay attention. Then there were the, yeah, the houses where maybe they gave out candy, but it wasn't like chocolate or they'd kind of give you some sort of health pamphlet along with it. Those were the houses kids skipped. So I always made sure you go to the big houses, but make sure you get to all the ones the people skip cuz they always have extra candy. You go later in the night, they will give you twice as much. They're just looking to unload at that Good point.
1: Yeah, that Good was like See, trick. we learned we learned early on. I was I was still probably 10 or 11. My friend Ward and I learned, you know what? We can do a smaller geographic area quicker and find the great place so we would have if we do it multiple times so we had three costumes ready to go no we would do our first costume with a pillowcase race home dump the pillowcase change costume and do the entire area again a second time and then do the entire area a third time each time dumping the pillowcase and it let me tell you it worked kids parents teach your kids what was that Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song said, teach your children well. This is what they need to be taught, how to (laughs) score with trick-or-treating. Multiple costumes, same geography. It works. The big news story of the day today, as of right now anyway, is the arrest of a 25-year-old in a crime in this city that, uh, I mean, look, there's lots of crimes that shock a lot of people. This one really though, really though, got a lot of people's attention i want to bring in lisa Polesky, of course reporter with 900 chml who has been covering this lisa thanks for doing this thanks for having me so um fill us in on this so for the people who remember the story there was a family their home was i guess invaded and a 25 or sorry a um a 21 year old was shot and killed his father is in hospital still with serious injuries what has happened today
3: so, yes, the Hamilton police have announced that uh, they've arrested 25-year-old Antoine Chambers of Hamilton. He's been charged with first-degree murder, attempted murder, aggravated assault, and kidnapping, um, as well as firearms charges that he was actually initially arrested on on the night of September 16th. So he was arrested early on, this, within 24 hours of the whole, when this all went down, but police didn't really have enough at the time to kind of tie him to the uh the kidnapping and the murder. So they now have that and have gone ahead with these charges. Um they're still looking for two other suspects, very vague descriptions at this point. We know they're male. Um, but yeah, the the descriptions that police have are, are kind of based on just kind of witness testimony and uh, from what I understand, grainy surveillance footage. So they're they're still uh, they're, the search is very much still underway for who was responsible for what happened to uh, Fakir Ali and his sons. Uh, tragically, Nano, the 21 year old son, um, died in hospital after he was shot trying to help his father when that all unfolded.
1: The the police had this press conference today where they laid this all out. One of the things that when you hear a story like this, that really makes people worry is the, is the idea of a random situation like this, where this just could have happened to anybody. Is there any, has anything been said where, was this family targeted or was this truly a random incident? Well, we it,
3: it's, it seems like he was targeted for sure. Um, the, the All they know about motive so far is that the, the suspects were after money. So they were looking for money, but um, police aren't saying how much money, whether or not this is related to that kind of uh, the amount, the unpaid amount from a small claims court back in 2018. But that was only about $12,000. And I mean, to do something like this for such a minuscule amount of money comparatively it seems... Kind of shocking, uh, like you say. It's it's something that we wouldn't expect to see here in Hamilton. And this family, they seemed like a like a very nice family. Um, Fakir Ali has ties. You know, he's he's got history with political figures. Um, he he was the member of a former Pakistan Association of um, Hamilton. So, I mean, they, they're a very nice family. Apparently, there's no really association with police. It's really unclear about why. They were targeted in this situation.
1: Yeah, and that's that's always, Lisa. That's always the thing. So I mean, I'm glad you expressed that from what we know, because not after you try to say, okay, why were they targeted? The next thing is, okay, what did they do wrong? And it's, sa- I mean, in this particular case, it doesn't sound like a case where they did something to bring this upon them. I mean, certainly those things happen at times. You you get mixed in with the wrong people. You make bad decisions. Bad things can happen. That doesn't sound like this is the case here
3: no and they've they've tried um thankfully fakir ali he's he's awake and um he and his surviving oh, okay. son they've they have been sent home from hospital they're still not doing well like i mean the the, the nature of the injuries that you hear that uh, fakir ali was severely beaten and dropped off at near beach boulevard that morning and just It's a miracle, not a miracle, (laughs) you know, the medical, we have the medical professionals to thank for the fact that they're surviving, but um, Detective Sergeant Steve Barazouk said, Quite honestly, they're lucky to be alive. So they're they're mm. talking to um, Ali to try and figure out wh- what why would you have been targeted in this horrific incident? Um, so they're really there's still a lot of questions that have yet to be answered here.
1: Absolutely. And I think if I recall the phrase the day this happened, I think they used the word life-altering injuries. Now, hopefully that's not the case. And hopefully there can be a better recovery. But I remember that statement and thinking, wow, that's um that is significant. Alisa uh, Puleski, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes.
3: Thanks for having
1: me. Take care. Catch up on the news and information you've missed.
0: This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Read a piece uh, in the Atlantic today, and the headline was this. America is running out of everything. Now, we are not, I don't think we're facing quite the same challenges. And and it's, you know, it's, that's hyperbole. Let's be honest, that's hyperbole. But it's making the point that there are now some items some things that generally are pretty easy to find on some store shelves that are becoming more difficult to find or prices are going up and this is a result of problems with the supply chain which from all accounts is directly related to COVID although maybe maybe not but yes there are issues now with how things are getting here and how they're being sent out all around North America and really When you read this, it is a circle. So you can't really point to one specific starting point. The whole economy, how this works is a big circle. One thing leads to the other and goes back to the beginning. But I want to bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. And Marvin, for the sake of trying to figure this out, that where the Atlantic starts, their circle, is off the port of Los Angeles in the Pacific Ocean with a whole bunch of boats that don't have anywhere to go. Can you take it from there and explain why the why the system the supply chain is now having problems
4: well i'm happy to do it but i'd like to start in a different point if you don't mind sure go ahead um, um you know the article i don't I haven't read that specific article but i read other articles like this and they the the journalists themselves are not trained in business and so they tend to use the term supply chain a little indiscriminately when sometimes it's simply a supply problem So to give you a simple example, you probably are well aware that earlier this year we had a lumber shortage. Oh, my God, I couldn't get any lumber to build a fence or build a deck. And if I could, it was astronomically priced. That really wasn't a supply chain problem. It was a supply problem because the people who made lumber made a strategic decision a year ago that during COVID, no one's going to need lumber. Who's going to be wanting to build anything? So they stopped cutting down trees. They stopped you know, cutting it into boards, they stop drying it out and they just stop doing it. And that all worked brilliantly for them in 2020. But 2021, what no one saw coming was that we would be, having been trapped indoors all this time, we would want to be finishing our basements and doing a new deck and doing a new fence. We all rushed out. There was no supply of the lumber to meet you. That's what led the prices to go up. Since then, of course, they've cut down trees, they've turned into lumber, and now we've flooded the market with it, and prices have crashed. They've come right back down. So some of this is misestimating supply during a pandemic. In other words, people are not making more. They're cutting back. Saying, Well, we, uh, who do we know? This is one of the problems with beef, why beef prices have gone up. A lot of the slaughterhouses shut down. Now, there are supply chain problems, and I would prefer to use it as a starting point That wonderfully cute story from earlier this year about that boat that was sideways in the Suez Canal. Yes, yes. He's really stupid. He doesn't know what to do. And you might remember it took the better part of a week to get that boat dislodged. And there was a footnote to that story that most people missed was that there were a large number of boats on either end of the Suez Canal parked waiting to get in. And even though they eventually got that boat freed, it pushed back a lot of boats getting through, and that's exactly a supply chain problem. Again, to give you a simple example of this, last week, last Wednesday, a boat departed Vancouver that was loaded with absolutely nothing other than empty containers. And uh, what had happened was as this supply and demand, these chains got unbalanced, in part due to the Suez Canal, We had a lot of containers here sitting empty. Asia wanted to fill them with products, but they didn't have empty containers there. So although it's a relatively expensive process to send a boat to Asia carrying nothing but empty containers... That's what we did to try to rebalance the system. So, this is what's working its way through. There has been rumors for the better part of a year that there's going to be a tire shortage. I first saw that in March of this year. They've now come out with this story again. Well, winter tires, you'd better rush out there because how do we get the tires from Asia? We fill these containers and the containers aren't coming. I'm not sure there's going to be. The car companies, or excuse me, the tire companies themselves say, They'll be fine on all this, but this is where the warnings are coming from because there's this imbalance. It will sort itself out. It will take three or four months, but in particular, if there are things you're looking for for Christmas, like that hot toy your child just has to have, buy it now, find a good hiding place, stick it away, because when you absolutely want to buy it in December, it just might not be there on the shelf.
1: Yeah. And you know, that's, that's, that's a great explanation. And when, when I mentioned the, the port of Los Angeles, again, the example is, and it probably exists in our ports here in Canada too. It they're does. using this example that there's such a shortage of drivers. We go back to, so truck drivers, huge shortage of supply. So they get all these bar, these containers, as you describe, that are now backing up in the port. They can't drive them out of the port fast enough to make room for the new containers to come in. So they now have all these boats that are floating around loaded right. with these containers full of stuff. You can just see how one part, I mean, it it really, I don't want to say it's a house of cards. It's not a house of cards, but how it's like a Jenga game. One part can affect everything else if it doesn't work properly. Well,
4: it, it, yeah, it, it, I don't want to say use a Jenga game, but it is an intricate system. And this, uh, the whole thing we describe about this is called just-in-time inventory management, that the new shipment of inventory arrives just at the point you need it. You're down to your last item, and, oh, okay, they're replenishing the supply. And when it works, it works brilliantly. It keeps the cost down. No one's got extra money tied up in inventory they're not using. But when you get a perturbation, in this case, something as simple as a boat sticking itself sideways in the suit canal for 10 days it throws off that really fine-tuned ballet that choreographed ballet and it's hard to catch up we will catch up there is a little bit of slack in the system so over time we will get there uh, use another quick example uh, many people have been seeing these high gas prices oh my gosh gasoline prices are so high well if you're in england What's causing the gasoline prices there is not just the world price of oil being up, but what you just mentioned, there's a shortage of drivers in England to try to fix this. They've actually said taken people in the army who are trained to deliver military vehicles and put those drivers, they've taken them out and said, you're going to drive oil trucks and gasoline trucks to try to deliver gasoline so we can get this thing fixed. That's not going to be their permanent job, but they need to do it for four to eight weeks to get the system back to balanced.
1: One other thing you just said, and we got time for one more here, and that is you talk about these empty cargo boxes that are now being sent back to China. Traditionally, usually, it works back and forth, that America would send its stuff in China. Why is North America sending empty boxes back? Why are we unable to fill our boxes to send them back and have to send the empty ones back? Well, it's just, again,
4: it's a case of balancing orders. So, you know, uh, somebody orders something from China, it comes over in a container, we refill it with some goods to send it back to China. But a- as this perturbation happened, as we threw off this delicate ballet, the-, the orders didn't, got themselves unbalanced. And so we had lots of stuff that came over, but we didn't have the orders to send it back. It will, again, sort itself out uh, over a little bit of time, and we'll get back to balance. But this is why this very unusual thing, I'll give you one other quick example, Costco, worried about keeping its supply, because you know Costco works on volume. You gotta move that product through Costco. They are worried about deliveries. They have actually hired their own boats to handle their own shipments for the next three months. Again, they're not going to permanently get into the shipping business, but they are so worried about this, they're going to have their own boats delivering product to make sure they keep those stores well-stocked headed towards Christmas time. People are doing unusual things because of this imbalance that's come about. And and so expect to hear more of this. I don't know what the next story is going to be. Uh, There was one about a a Christmas toy, something made of plastic, worried about getting the the plastic components, the little particles of plastic, to make the item not necessarily finished, because you're going to hear more of this in the months ahead.
1: Yeah, I don't know where in the world Costco is going to be able to get 47-gallon tubs of mayonnaise made to ship over here like they have, but you know what? Yeah, they'll find it somehow and get, send it, get it sent here somehow. Marvin Ryder from the Nagroot School of Business. Always appreciate the explanation. Thank you.
4: Glad to be with you today.
1: We are, and this is, you know, it's Thanksgiving weekend, so this is applicable in a lot of ways, but we're very fortunate in this country to have many of the things we do. We are also very fortunate in this country not to have some things other people have. Malaria being one of them. And let me tell you, as someone who got to enjoy a bout of malaria a number of years ago after spending a summer in the jungle doing volunteer work in Papua New Guinea, I can tell you that it is wildly unpleasant to go through. But as bad as it was, I didn't die, obviously. Many people around the world, though, are not so lucky, not so fortunate as I was. So the news that there is finally, seemingly a vaccine that's been approved... To protect against malaria is tremendous, tremendous news. I want to bring in Dr. Omar Khan. He is the assistant professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and the Department of Immunology with the University of Toronto and a medicine by design investigator. Dr. Khan, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. So malaria has been around... I'll say forever for the sake of argument, and it's been known about forever again for the sake of argument. How come it took so long to come up with a vaccine for this and it took just months to come up with a vaccine for COVID that we've all been now taking? Well, this is
5: an interesting story it kind of relates to COVID in the end. So this vaccine started its development in the 80s and the basic design of it hasn't changed. It's basically a protein antigen, mm-hmm. like a part of of the malaria pathogen that you would inject, the immune system recognizes, makes antibodies, kills it. But it was a problem with stabilizing it. How do you get that antigen to stay stable to be a good vaccine? Now, compared to the COVID vaccines, the mRNA ones, it's the instructions to make the antigen. So a bit different. Now, they ended up finding ways to stabilize it with other proteins, but then Some of the technology that's used in the COVID vaccines to help make them work better, they added those in, lipid parts, and those lipid parts really boosted the efficiency and made it work so much better, and that's what happened. And then, you know, a few years ago, this trial started with this similar technology to the COVID vaccines, and it it showed decent results, And, and now here we are with this great news.
1: And this, I mean, it is great news because, I don't know, do, do you know how many people get malaria or die from malaria every year? And it's it's probably a really hard number because many of these people would be off the beaten path and out of the the reach of investigators and, and doctors. That's part of the problem. But do we have any good idea?
5: Well, confirmed cases uh, a few years ago that over 400,000 people die from malaria. And, you know, a lot of those are, are children. And that's really a sad, terrible number. And we can this is going to help us bring that down.
1: Until now. So before now, if you had any protection against malaria, you would be with a mosquito net at night, or it would be with various pills that you could take. I know I, I took chloroquine once upon a time and Fancidar was one of the ones I believe that was available. Why have, the, why have the pills only been somewhat successful against this? Well, the thing with anything
5: that's, a treatment after infection is really it it's not a 100% effective because you're trying to kill the actual pathogen bug with a small molecule when you take it you take a pill you you, you swallow it and then that pill has to get through your digestive tract it's spread around your body and then it, it's a small chemical that kills that that bug and and so there are layers in which this has to go efficiency drops and they're not necessarily super specific but with this vaccine it's it's really different because what it's going after is the first stage of it so right after you're infected what happens is that it goes into the liver it makes more of itself and then it exits the liver and it infects your blood your red blood cells and then that's where a lot of the damage happens because your blood cells they start going away you get anemic because you don't have enough blood cells to carry oxygen and you get really sick, and then mosquitoes bite you, carry your blood, mosquitoes get infected, spread it to someone else they bite, and it just goes on and on. So the vaccine gets it right when it's in the liver. So right when it's starting to try to ramp up and make more of itself,
1: that's where it gets attacked. But this is a preventive vaccine, right? This is not to to deal with it once you've got it. We're hoping that this is going to work to prevent people from getting it.
5: Yeah, so the thing is with any vaccine, it takes effect, your antibodies take effect after it sees the pathogen. When it gets, so when the infected mosquitoes sting somebody, and then those little malaria bugs get inside of you, then your antibodies are going to start sticking to it and preventing it from doing any harm to you. And if some cells in your liver do start making them, those antibodies will be able to find those and get those as well. And that's what's really important. But it's that stage where it's not crushing your
1: blood cells. I read a story from the BBC uh, about this, and I was reading that right now, I think it's something like 40% effective, that 40% of people who get this vaccine, I guess, are going to have this full coverage. If you're in the medical field, if you're a doctor, a scientist, are you looking at this saying this isn't good enough because it's only 40%? Or are you looking saying, yeah, but that's 40% more than 0%, which is really bad.
5: It's actually pretty good for a vaccine. I think people are Extremely spoiled the COVID nineteen vaccines because they are really effective. But um yeah, other vaccines aren't up to that level of, of effectiveness. Oh. But some yeah, something around fifty percent, forty percent, these are decent vaccines. These are actually good vaccines. And the thing is, it even if it doesn't completely prevent infection, it'll still reduce severity of your disease and help you clear that infection. And that's really what's happening here and that's that's the benefit. So you know, even if you, even if it's 40% effective, if you're saving 40% of children infected, that's a huge, huge number.
1: Yeah, 40, I mean, if, if you were saying, how many you say 400,000 people a year, 300,000 die, yeah. you take 40% of those not dying. That's a big number. I mean, that's a very big number. And you're right.
5: Now, not not everybody's reporting their infection. Not everybody knows,
1: so it could... Be no, and that's more. really the tricky part here, Dr. Connor. I really think that because we don't have malaria here in Canada. Uh, I don't think there's anywhere in North America that would really have malaria. We're talking about a lot of impoverished countries, developing nations. And because of that, many of the people would have a difficult time either affording it or they're not easily accessible because they are not in a city, they're way out there. So how, how are we going to be able, how are people going to be able to make this happen to get this to the people who really, really need it the most, who might be the people who are least able to actually get this stuff.
5: Well, this is the challenge that's coming next, because it's four doses. You do the first three doses one month apart, and then the second, the the final dose is eighteen months later. So it's quite a long time to get built up this level of protection. And that's gonna be hard in the developing world where you have folks who don't get to visit the doctor regularly and have to coordinate it. So what's happening is that, you know, they're working on a development plan to see, make sure that people can get this out there. We've seen, you know, this is possible. We've seen it with COVID. We've seen it with polio. We've seen these vaccination campaigns are possible. As long as you have a good vaccine, people will move heaven and earth to make sure people get it.
1: Dr. Omar Khan, very much appreciate the time today. Thanks for helping us. No problem. Take care, everybody. Three hours and 10 minutes, give or take almost exactly from this moment. The puck will drop on a new Hamilton Bulldogs season. You may have noticed that uh, we're saying a new Hamilton Bulldogs season and we haven't really talked about the Bulldogs for a while. Well, you know why. COVID, right? Uh Uh-huh. Affected everybody. Steve Steos, the president and general manager of the Bulldogs, joins us now. Steve, how are you tonight? Today? I'm doing I'm doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm good. It feels like it's been a while. It, it really, it, it does in a way,
6: I took some time to reflect uh, for a moment leading into the game tonight and just what, uh, what everybody has gone through really uh, up until this point, but especially our athletes, uh, their families, you know, um, their billets, it's just been, uh, you know, it's just a good feeling to have everything, you know, back up and running and uh, um, yeah, really looking forward to, to uh, getting the season started.
1: Is it is it possible in any way to maintain any momentum from what was happening in March of two thousand and twenty when this stopped, or, I mean, really you can't help it; you're kind of starting from scratch almost right now.
6: Uh, yeah, I would I would say they were starting from scratch. I think every team is, and that's I think what's really exciting about our league this year. Um, you know, uh, we have a number of new players, um, a new captain now coming in, and uh, it's complete. It, it's a, it's quite a bit different, I'd say, Scott. Uh, it, and again, the uniqueness and excitement of this season, because everybody's trying to gauge what their team is going to be and and where they're at. It's very very difficult to do. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of parity, a lot of very close games, and uh, a lot of energy. You know, these young student athletes have been pent up for quite a while, and. Uh, by the looks of training camp and preseason and our fitness testing, I think uh, I don't. You know, our, our players are ready to go.
1: You say you have a few new players. I would suggest it's maybe more than a few new players. I mean, <laughs> and not just you guys. I mean, you you've got two classes of rookies coming in because you had two drafts but no season, so you got two years of rookies, and then you've got a bunch of veterans coming back. But they didn't play the. There was no OHL last year, so a bunch of them went and played pro that you mix that all in together and boy it is who knows what this is going to look like right now
6: yeah no I, exactly it's uh, it's exciting and uh, a little bit nerve-wracking all at the same time um every team is dealing with it we have uh, i'll give you an, a great example chandler Romeo, who's playing in his first ohl game tonight's already an nhl draft pick yeah uh you know so uh, i think that sums it up for some of these young players and uh uh, you know, moving into the Ontario Hockey League challenging year um, and a year off, so uh, I think our coaches have done a phenomenal job through uh, training camp and preseason on preparing our group. And uh, um, you know, I think more than ever, I think it's going to take a little bit of time to really evaluate where we're at and, and uh, you know get to get to the level or maximize our potential. Uh, you know, training camp was long, but we had 11 players got to uh, pro camps, so a challenge for our coaching staff to implement systems and, uh, uh, and the like to get these guys all on the same page when, uh, you know, we just, we really had Navrin Mutter and we back in, in our team, Kershka back only for the past uh, three or four days. So, um, and those guys are obviously very core pieces to our group. So, um, again, just excited to get going, um, you know, and, uh, and watching the coaching staff and the players, uh, you know, work towards their maximum potential.
1: But if I had asked you almost any other year, you've been involved four hours before the puck drops on your season and said, Steve, tell me what the order of the teams is going to be. You're, you're not, a, you're not pressing, you're not Kresgin, but you're going to have a pretty good idea what teams are pretty good and what teams are not. There's always going to be surprises. Mm-hmm. Do you have, do you have any capability to do that right now? Or really, are you looking at this going, I really just have no idea how this is going to shake out?
6: Yeah, it's it's really tough, and I think you're right. You and I could have had a conversation uh, before, uh, you know, a typical year, and uh, you know, me broke it down a little bit more in depth. I, even going through preseason, there are some players on on opposing teams that uh, you know I recalled from minor midget, but they'd already won and played junior for a year, didn't play last year, um, and uh, it's it's new. It's a new, fresh look. I think it adds a ton of excitement to the league, to our team for sure. Um, but I really like what I what I think I continue to look back or look at with our group in, in particular. Where we're really proud is just the, the character and the culture of this group. Uh, again, we talk about it a lot, Scott. As you know, uh, we want to create the right environment for these young student athletes to come in and and really enjoy uh, their junior experience. And I can I can feel pretty confident saying that uh, that we've done a good job in that regard. The players have really taken a hold of that.
1: You did something really unique I mean I I was trying to think back to the last time a team did this and there was one example and that was Wayne Gretzky which is really unfair to to drop that name in on any discussion but you named a newcomer as a captain a guy who's never played for you before as a captain Uh, and I can't think of too many times that I remember that happening at any level Uh, explain your choice and explain how he's now your captain
6: yeah, well, it's, it is the coach's choice. Um, but I can speak to Colton Cameron and his character, his leadership, um, his commitment. Um, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. And, uh, you'll get a chance to meet him and talk to him and, and get to know him a little bit with our group. But he is one really special and it was a really challenging call for our coaches. You know, it, was, it could have been two or three, maybe four, up to four players You could have been the captain of our team. Um, and Colt just exudes this incredible, you know, uh, he's got a, a real calm demeanor about him. He's an extremely hard competitor. Um, he hasn't taken, I think Coach has said this, that he hasn't taken a rep off in practice in the gym, the way he conducts himself. He's just a great role model, on and off the ice. He's a great student as well. He's continuing his university education. He just, in all areas, he checks all the boxes. And, uh, you know, when Jay told me that that was going to be his choice, I was, uh, uh, I was, you know, very encouraged for not only our group in general, even our veterans, but our young players to be able to look up, uh, they have a great mentor leader and pull the camera.
1: What, what a shock though, that Jay McKee, the all-time great defensive defenseman would choose a good defensive <laughs> defenseman and is his captain. So, you know, we can, we can have that talk later. Hey, we only have a second here today. And we're going to be talking about this later on the show. Uh, today is national heroes day. And I'm wondering when Steve Steyos was growing up, it could be a hockey player, it could be anyone else. Who was Steve Staios hero when you were a kid?
6: Oh, uh, it, it, it moved around a little bit. I think probably my most formidable hockey years, since we're talking hockey right now, um, as far as a player to look up, up to uh, when I was watching would be uh, Chris Chelios. Um, you know, he was a right-shot defenseman, probably about the same size, and uh, played with a little bit of offense. And uh, he was a really tough, hard competitor. I, I mean, hero is a big word, and I think if, if I was if Chelios on the line, probably, uh, you know, laugh about that. But I just think about, as we're talking about hockey, he has to be someone that comes to mind. But obviously, my heroes, my mom and dad, they're both uh, uh, the ones who have been the great leaders in my life.
1: That is Steve Stales president and general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs, who kick off their season tonight. Tomorrow evening, 7 o'clock, they face the Barry Colts at home. Home opener tomorrow evening. If you're interested in seeing a hockey game for the first time in well, a year and more than a year and a half. Steve, so really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
6: Yeah, I good can't luck wait for tomorrow night. There's going to be great excitement tomorrow night. Our health care workers are all going to be. We're going to have a, you know uh, over a thousand health care workers at our game tomorrow night, and I think it's a great opportunity for us to not only entertain them but show them our thanks.
1: Appreciate it, Steve. Good luck. Thanks. The truth
6: and only the truth. This
0: is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on, on 900 CHML.
1: Down in the states, there have been a lot of questions recently about politicians and questionable financial transactions not just politicians either leading bureaucrats people in very high positions in the financial sector so how do we know about the questions though? how do we know that there have been issues with some of the politicians though as we go there and their financial transactions well because they're forced to disclose things like their investments and and their their financial status they are forced to tell the people what they're all about when it comes to their finances so people can see this. It's a very transparent thing. In Canada, not so much. In fact, not really at all. Question is, should they be? Would it be good for our politicians to have to disclose their finances so when decisions are made, we can see who's making decisions that help themselves? Professor Jean-Vivre Tellier is with the University of Ottawa. She joins us now. Professor, thanks for the time today. Appreciate this. Thank you very much. If our politicians had to disclose the investments that they had and their finances, it would absolutely make some of the decisions more transparent and make people more comfortable with what was going on behind the scenes, would it not?
7: I think so and that's uh, one thing I would agree and I would uh, uh, lobby for that uh, in the sense that more transparency is better than nothing and in recent years there have been some changes in the House of Commons in Parliament in Ottawa where we have now disclosure about travelling expenses and all expenses related to their work which is a good thing and so if you go on the website of uh, the House of Commons you have all the details for that and now journalists are reporting on that and so each year there are saying uh, which MP is uh, spending the most and which is spending the less. Of course, you have to be balanced in the sense that uh, if you live far from Ottawa, of course, your traveling expenses will be higher, but at least that brings more transparency. So that would be a good measure, and we could expand it for your total income, including uh, your investments, uh, maybe your tax return or so before you were enter politics and that kind of uh, information. So for democracy, I think broadly, generally, that's a good initiative.
1: Well and you mentioned about how now politicians have to declare on their travel and everything and we remember very famously Bev Oda who who got in all kinds of trouble because she billed an or- a glass of orange juice to mm-hmm. taxpayers and stuff and there are other examples as well but you know that 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 what she did and I'm not excusing it but it was small potatoes there are people in politics who have significant investments significant money I think people would want to know that if they were or were not voting on bills or issues that might benefit them. I'm assuming most of them are upright and honorable and would would declare a conflict of interest, but I think people would want to at least know they are.
7: Yes, um, there is already a piece of legislation which is called the Lobbying Act, where you have to disclose every meetings and and and, and uh, influences maybe that uh, could occur between uh, uh, its ministers. So it's not all MPs, but minister and, and anyone uh, that want to speak with uh speak with minister. So that's maybe the starting point of expanding that bill and and having more disclosure on on to whom did you talk. So it's not just how much or what you have, but what did you do after that? With whom did you talk? And so that could strengthen or, or even expand and bring more transparency. But there's another point I would bring into that the picture is that Please. you you would like to have representatives that represent the population. So if it's only the wealthiest that are being elected to parliament, then there is an issue. And so maybe we could question ourselves uh, how representative people are, MPs are. For Canadians, and if we don't see that representation, what could we do to improve that representation? So, have people with less means uh, entering politics and representing ourselves.
1: That is, that is a fantastic point, because you know as well as everybody listening knows, every politician likes to talk about how they've pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, and they came from middle class, and you know they're one of the people and all the rest. I bet you that many of them would want nothing to do with having to disclose their finances, because it would show that all that stuff they're saying is not true at all. They're not one of the people. They're very wealthy, many of them.
7: Yes exactly so so the thing is that it's not bad to make money, I think That's no not at the all. starting point, but at least uh, nonetheless, I would be concerned if uh, everybody comes from the same. Same uh, business, same sector, and, and as I said before, is not as representative as uh, would be the entire Canadian population. So that that would be interesting, um, and, and make the the, the make politics attractable for everybody. So if and one thing people don't want to talk about is how low the income is currently for MPs. So uh, we tend to think that it's very uh, it's very high, but not necessarily because you could have better in the private sector. And so having a more fair remuneration, um, uh, wage would be probably something we should suck also to, to exactly to attract more people into the field of politics. So so the finances are complex. So there are many sides to the issue. Um, it's, it's how much you want to pay MPs, how much they represent people, and, and what are the financial ties with different sectors uh, in the country also.
1: Do you believe that if we were to require federal politicians to disclose their wealth and their investments and everything else, would that deter people from running for office, do you think?
7: Probably up to a point, but I don't have any numbers to base my my judgment on that. Uh, but I see how people don't want to disclose that information uh, for a moment. So probably that's a big concern um I see also how it is difficult to come from the private sector and change your mind about that and so uh, there was a case recently in Quebec about a minister that did not want to sell his share of his own company and so he was uh, he was forced to resign um and so you have to think about that um, this incentive to enter politics politics, yes, and ensure the disclosing of, of your financial ties and not just you, but your family also, I would guess, because uh, it's easy to transfer money to people that you know. So um, that would, we, we, gonna ha- we need to think about that and what are the different implications. And I would go one step further. If we ask that about politicians, what about every Canadian? Uh, and in some countries, income returns are public. And so, would we like to have that in Canada? Um, I'm not sure there's only benefit for that uh, because people will try to, will be noisy, nosy, if you understand what I mean. They will look at what their neighbors are doing and then pass judgment on that. Um, but it's a question of culture. How transparent should you be, uh, everybody in society, about your finances?
1: Fascinating question. Professor Geneviève Tellier from the Un- University of Ottawa. Thank you so much for a few minutes today. I really appreciate it.
7: thank you for the invitation.
1: If you're in the market to buy a house in the greater Hamilton area, you may have noticed it is not cheap. The last numbers that we saw were the average now is pushing something like $900,000. So if I told you that there was a perfectly good three-bedroom home for sale with a new kitchen, hardwood floor, spa bathroom, gazebo, access to all kinds of pools and amenities. And I told you it was about a third of the average, the price. What would you say? Oh, no, not what I I should add that it was. it's located on a naturist resort, the Ponderosa Resort on Highway 6. So you don't, you don't have to be new to live in your house, but you probably have to be reasonably comfortable with your neighbor sunning their bits and pieces now and again from your patio. Cece Alexander is the realtor who's got this listing. She joins us now. Cece, thanks for doing this today.
8: Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Look, I have seen some unusual listings. There have been lots of unusual listings over the years, but for you, th- this one's got to be up there th- to sell the, the, <laughs> the naturist resort house and get a client that is willing to do this. For sure. Because not everyone, I'm guessing, is into this lifestyle. In fact, I know not everyone would be into this lifestyle. But the trade-off to get a house that is way seemingly way below market value in exchange for this, I- I'm thinking some people could probably get used to it.
8: Oh, absolutely! You know, it is a very different lifestyle. It's it's a niche lifestyle uh, as a naturist or, or nudist. The, those two are somewhat synonymous, um, and uh it's it's very unusual um it's exciting to uh you know realize that there's great properties out there lease land properties in this price range which might be fantastic options for people looking to get into the real estate market but yes this particular listing there is a requirement
1: and 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 here's the thing i mean Again, not everyone is going to be comfortable, but really, I would think unless the residents around there are unbelievably much braver than I would expect, this is only really an issue for half the year.
8: (laughs) It's true. It's true. Um, You know, in the the summer months, the park is very busy. Uh, They have a lot of guests who come in, people who come in seasonal and day passes, and the park is quite full from people all over every demographic um, you could imagine. Um, so you're right in the winter months when it gets cooler, the jackets come on and, uh, it's quieter in the park for sure.
1: Yeah. There's not as many people hanging out on the porch, which is probably a poor choice of words, but nonetheless, um, (laughs) have, have you had much interest from this yet? Other than people like me and other people who are calling saying, Hey, this is a really interesting listing as far as buyers. Do you, have you had a lot of people nosing around?
8: We have, um, you know, selling a nudist property is um, it's different from, you know, the regular process <laughs> I that I would have think. for my regular residential <laughs> commercial properties. So there's a few changes, uh, you know, definitely things like drone footage out of the question, um, photography is <laughs> handled with, you know, some kid gloves. But the biggest difference is the volume of inquiries. Um, we have a screening process that we have in place. And uh, with a typical entry-level home, uh, you would get maybe 20, 25 inquiries a day. We're getting two to 300 inquiries a day.
1: Sorry, how many? So,
8: two to 300 inquiries per day.
1: And, and again, are these people who are inquiring just because they're curious and it's ha, 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 or is it because you, that you get the sense that a lot of them are really serious? You know,
8: we're getting a mix. At the end of the day, I'd say about 1% are the serious buyers, but we get asked all kinds of questions. Uh, Many people are asking what leased land is all about, like how does that work, Um, you know, how does a rental work, things like that. But uh, we get some very interesting and very unique inquiries. Um, Such as? For example, example, I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, (laughs) We had a buyer that um, called and wanted some retail commercial space as he felt that this would be a great location for a clothing store.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I think he missed the point, but, you know, far be it from me to question his business acumen, but that seems like it may be kind of off the mark. Hey, you know, it's
8: all how you perceive it, right?
1: Well, uh, maybe for the emperor and his new clothes, that would be the kind of closing story you could put there, but uh, that's that's sort of a deep dive. Um, This is a weird one, and of the people that are calling and the ones that you think are serious, is there more of a particular type of clientele. And what I mean by that is not nudist, but age, because some people might Mm -hmm. say, well, this is a retirement property, but others because the price might say, no, it's an entry into the market for people who, who, what's the age of the people primarily who are calling?
8: You know, that's a very interesting question. And in the five years that I've been representing properties in that park, I have noticed a change in the age that's coming forward, making inquiries, the serious inquiries, Um, The demographics in the park, as I said, during high season, there's young families, there's singles, there's seniors, you've got it all. In the off-season, resorts quieter, uh, more uh, seniors with the permanent residents, snowbirds, things like that. But I have really noticed a change over the last five years where the park is attracting a younger generation into the park. And the mix of homes there, its uh, this particular home, is, uh, you know, very nice we have, there's a lot of cabins, there's mobiles, like it's, it's very unique. It's, there's something for everyone. So we are seeing quite a difference.
1: This is again, uh, you know, all the questions are weird. I grant you on this one, but when people <laughs> come to do a visit, to, to look through the home, and I assume that you can have home tours, do they all remain clothed, or are some of them into this lifestyle and decide they show up at the park and you're showing them the home while they are au naturel?
8: Right, right. Another great question. I get asked that quite a bit. Uh, you do not have to be naked to come and view a property in the park. Uh, there are other professional services like myself who work on behalf of the clients in the park, like there's landscapers, Amazon delivers, utility workers. It's normal day-to-day business with home ownership.
1: It is, uh it is look it's it's a really interesting thing. it's, it's you, people can read about this at the spec.com there's a story they can go on to realtor.ca and see it as you say the pictures are very there's no uh, there's no naughty bits in the picture so don't go there. this is not like as you're a kid looking for National <laughs> Geographic stuff. so uh, none of that. And I must say CC as I as I was doing this I thought you may have the most perfect name for people interested in going to a nudist park to be called CC. I I don't know if you planned that or not, but that was, uh, as soon as I saw it, I went, wow, she figured that out perfectly. Um, Listen, really, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this.
8: Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
1: It is, uh, That's a really interesting one. And again, you know, if you were someone who could get used to that, could handle that, could be into that, that could be a great real estate investment for you. On the other hand, if seeing your next door neighbor bending over to trim the flowers. And if that might throw you for a bit of a loop, it would me, uh, you know, maybe keep looking anyway, look it up. If you went, if you want for many months, now hospitals have either been busy with COVID or busy getting prepared to be busy with COVID and what that's meant uh, in addition to a lot of other things that have had to been changed on the fly is, is that thousands of surgeries that were not necessarily urgent, not necessarily life-saving, have been delayed. But now that things seem to be getting a little bit back closer to normal, and hospitals are now able to step back a little bit from being on full red alert that COVID is about to hit us in a massive tsunami, uh, it looks like it may be time now to start catching up. That, however, is not going to be easy. Dr. Carolyn Goss is president, a uh, Vice President of St. Joseph's Health System with Responsibility for Integrated Care Initiatives, and she is the President of St. Joseph's Home Care. She joins us now. Dr. Goss, thank you for the time today. Sure. Nice to be on. Uh, to try and catch up with all of these surgeries that have not been able to happen, this, this honestly sounds like a monumental task when we're talking now about 18 or 19 months.
9: It is for sure, and I know that all the hospitals across Ontario are, are planning on trying to make up for for lost time in many ways to help support those surgeries that didn't happen. Um, and in home care as well, we're also trying to prepare for that because we know that uh, you know thirty or forty percent of patients who have surgery in hospital would need home care support after they're discharged from hospital.
1: Right. And, and, you know, whether it's doctors, whether it's surgeons, whether it's nurses, whether it's people doing home care, um, you need human beings and human beings cannot be worked 24 hours around the clock. How do you handle this crush then? Uh,
9: well, for, for home care, it's been a real challenge uh, across the board, uh, to be frank, during the pandemic. So we, um, we've always been a little bit challenged in terms of staffing in home care across Ontario. Um, you know, there's lots of competition for staff. And during the pandemic, like many healthcare organizations, uh, we've seen some staff either leave um, the sector or move to a different part of the health system, and it means that we've been really challenged. So we know in Ontario, for example, um, across the board, we've lost about the equivalent of 3,000 nurses uh, from home care. So, you know, when we pair that up with it, what we know will be a really uh, increasing demand for nursing and other home care support in the fall and for the next probably two to three years as we recover, it's going to be a real challenge to try to meet that demand.
1: Uh, yeah, and, and one word, as soon as you start saying that, I mean, all I can hear is the word burnout. I mean, I just, I can't imagine. I mean, it just, you've already lost these, this many people. I can't imagine there's yeah. not going to be more saying, yeah, you know what, I'm tapping out here. I've had enough
9: it's you know it, it's it's really important. I mean, we, like many other organizations, have really done as you know as much as we can for sure to help support our staff, recognizing that it's been not only stressful for them professionally, but of course we've all had the extra burdens in our personal lives because of the pandemic, you know, young children in school, et cetera. so it it has been a really difficult thing for everyone to balance. Um, but so we're certainly trying to you know plan, work very closely, so we have a Uh, a special relationship with St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton because we all work for the same system. So we've been fortunate that uh, we are able to plan directly with the hospital team. So we've been doing lots of work to try to anticipate, you know, how many patients will require surgery, what that will mean in terms of staffing. So we're really doing the best we can to help uh, plan for that. But there's no doubt that it's going to put pressure on a system that is already extremely tight and and frankly not quite meeting the demand of what regular home care is today
1: i'm assuming and that's always a dangerous thing to do but i'm assuming that the vast majority or all of the surgeries that were delayed Mm -hmm. over the course of this COVID time were either elective or quality of life procedures that could wait am i correct or were there some that were postponed that actually were really really necessary but just couldn't get done
9: um, well, I, I know certainly um, the hospitals have really prioritized those that were um, that were required. So cancer uh, surgeries, for example, um, we've certainly continued to support those through home care as well. So the the really critical surgeries, uh, everyone has really put their best effort to make sure that there were no delays. And we've been able, uh, through home care as well, to help support them throughout the, the, the entire time of the pandemic But there are a lot of other very important surgeries that definitely have impact on people's quality of life uh, that have been delayed. And that's certainly where, you know, all the teams both in hospital and home care are trying to put a lot of effort to make sure that we can, you know, we can address those needs and help support the hospitals that are ramping up in, in, you know, more day surgery procedures and also doing some surgeries uh, that will be planned to happen through the weekend. So that's a little bit different than before. So it requires a lot of planning on on everyone's part to help
1: support that how, how i mean for your hospital because you can't speak for everybody of course but how do you triage this is it, because is it now the people who have been waiting the longest are going to be put to the front of the list or is it based on uh importance or, or how do you decide who gets in first and then who has to wait longer
9: um, so the, I know the 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 hospital team at St. Joe's has you know they've put a lot of effort into um, to looking at exactly what you're describing. There's a whole you know a series of things that they would look at to to prioritize. Um, I'm not uh, sort of privy uh, to exactly the mechanics of how they've done that, but I know that they've they put a lot of effort into um, you know looking at the the timeliness of surgery, so things that are more urgent. Um, you know, certainly people who have been waiting for a long period of time. And, and trying to you know, change the way they do surgery. So, for example, I know that there will be, um, you know, some surgeries. For example, or maybe patients needed to wait in hosp- or need to recover in hospital, For example, for four or five days. If we're working closely with them at home care, maybe they can be discharged home a little bit sooner, and that creates more space in hospitals to do more of the surgery. So it really is sort of an all, all hands on deck effort to try to support that.
1: It took us, um, what are we at, 19 months now from the time from March when this really kicked in? Uh, It took us 19 months to get into the situation we are. Do we know how long it's going to take to get out of this? Because there's, even as we're trying to catch up, there's always people coming along behind who add to the, who need this and add to the wait list. Like it's not just the people who have been out now for 19 months, it's them plus
9: Oh, well, there's there's no doubt, and we know that the provincial numbers, you know, show that there's over 400,000 procedures that have been that have been delayed. So that's a huge burden. So I've seen provincial estimates of anywhere from, you know, 18 to 24 months. That's estimated in terms of recovery. That that may vary a little bit from region to region, but but there's no doubt it will take a a you know a long time to recover from from the the lost time for for surgery. And as you say, there's there's still a lot of unknown. We're going into a a fall season where, you know, uh, you know public health and others are expecting the flu to be uh, a little bit more prominent than it would have been last year because we're opening up more. Um, and, you know, of course, COVID is, is still the unknown, although there's certainly progress being made on that front. Uh, you know, everyone still has to anticipate that, that that could disrupt things as well.
1: Well, it is, uh, it is a massive, massive challenge. Dr. Carolyn Goss, uh, St. Joseph's Healthcare, really appreciate the time. Thank you for this today.
9: No problem.
0: Happy to talk. If you're all about drama and gossip, well, this isn't for you. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Scott Thompson, not in today. Scott Radley sitting in on Hamilton Today with Ted Michaels and Diana Weeks. Should be the other way around, though. Or I should say, Diana. I should say, well, yeah, I was going to get to that, but it was, I was going to say, or Les Nessman And Diana can have her choice of either Bailey oh. Quarters or Jennifer Marlowe. I'm not sure which one she would take. Go for but Bailey. Bailey.
10: I'll take your guys' word on it. <laughs> yeah. I remember You've that show. Seen? I've seen WKRP in Cincinnati. Yes, okay, of course. I so. And I, of course, remember that turkey episode. I think about it every Thanksgiving, especially now that we work in radio. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's a good one. It is amazing how many
1: similarities <laughs> there are. Not oh, true. With the exact things. I joke about Ted being Les but He's not really Les Nessman. He doesn't wear a Band-Aid every day, and he doesn't have his office marked out on the floor. I don't and, have an office. Know, <laughs> that's the point. Yes. Hey, uh, today, you two, today yes. is, we've been talking to, about this. We're going to do it later in the show as well, but today is National Hero Day. National Hero Day. Diana, I will go to you first on this one. When you were growing up, it could be now still, but who was your hero? Did you have someone that you always wanted to be or that you really looked up to?
10: Oh man, that's a tough question. Mm. I can't. I can't think of one offhand. I know I've had a lot, but a hero? Hey. Hmm.
0: Well, I'll go to Ted while you think yeah, about that. Ted, I'll anyone think. for you? Uh, yeah, of course, my youth—it's such a long time ago. I don't remember. But um, I Bronk the caveman. Uh, <laughs> but I do know, <laughs> as a kid growing up, and I've changed mercifully. Uh, I used to be a Maple Leaf fan, so uh, people like—I uh, remember Bob Pulford. I was a big fan of Bob Pulford. Um, and other players who played on the Leafs. That was when I was growing up, and I and it it happened really, really young. I think I was nine years old at the time. But I was a fan. I don't know why, but I was a fan of JFK, uh, a a huge fan of uh, of JFK. And I remember how upset I was. And I was only nine years old when he uh, got assassinated. So I was. That was kind of well,
1: one of my early heroes. I think. Wow. You know, here's a, while Diana continues to think about this, here's a little pop culture tidbit about the JFK assassination. If you watch the opening scene of the first year, when they do the, um, of Gilligan's Island, when they do the song and they show them getting onto the minnow and sailing away. Yep. yep. In the background, the flag is at half mast because that scene was filmed the day after JFK was assassinated. Really? There you go. See a little. You learn something every day here on I, This
0: is today. what this is what you should do. But I'm I'm amazed that you picked up on that because most people wouldn't. They just watch the show and you know they always ask the question, how stupid is a professor if he can't figure out how to get him off the island? But that's another story. But
1: well, and how much money did Mr. or did Thurston Howell Thurston carry Howell. with him <laughs> at all times? And, yeah. <laughs> Anyway. So Diana, was there anyone no, well, I'll give you one more chance cuz one my my guy, my hero as a kid, and as I say we're going to talk about this later, was Bernie Perrault, the mm-hmm. goalie for the Flyers yes. Stanley Cup years. I want I I played goal, I tried to break in my pads to look like his, I wore a mask that had the Philadelphia Flyers logos. I wanted to be had the shirt, wanted to be Bernie Perrault. Of course, never really turned out. I'm doing radio, not making millions playing goal in the NHL, but you know, it doesn't mean you didn't cheer for the guy and love the guy, but Anybody, Diana, or was it sort of just a, a moving target all through your life?
10: I think it was a moving target, but something that comes to mind possibly later in life. So this would have been in my teen years, like late teen years, I would say. And my nerd's going to show here. But I think Margaret Atwood for me. <laughs> oh, I've nice. always looked up to her. And um, as a writer, if I've looked up to her. And uh, just, you know, so she's been, she's been a big hero, I think, always constant in my life. Yeah.
1: All right. It is It is Thanksgiving so, and I asked Will this at the very start of the show. You each get to have your say on this. It's Thanksgiving. Ted, we'll go to you first on this one. Mm-hmm. Turkey or ham? Oh, turkey. Come on. <laughs> no <laughs> comparison. Hey, you know, no, there, fr- th- th- Listen, there are some hammers who will I, arm wrestle you over I
0: here. am from, I am of Polish descent. My wife is Italian. So it's pierogi. So, it's no, pierogi. it is turkey all the time. Never had ham for Thanksgiving. <laughs> I go, feh, feh to ham for Thanksgiving.
1: What about a tofu turkey or whatever they call <laughs> no! it? The tofu no,
0: no, 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 no. It's got to be. Authentic. <laughs> you got to be
1: careful that when you say that word, you got to be very careful. I know,
0: I know, I know. Anyway, so Diana? no turkey by all means. Um,
10: turkey for sure. But in our house, uh, like I'm going to my mom and dad's on Sunday, we're having both ham and turkey, I believe. So we always do that. Mm. Even at Christmas time, we do that. I enjoy both. I really do. Um, but my mom's turkey. I gotta world. say, it's so good.
1: Uh, and I will say, when, when I say tofurki, and you have to be very careful, only once have I sworn on the air. <laughs> and it was by accident. We were eating hamburgers on the air, and I was eating one <laughs> from the Pheasant Plucker restaurant. Oh, God. And when you have a mouthful of hamburger uh-huh. and you try to say the name of that restaurant, yes. it doesn't work well. No. And, nope. um, yeah, thankfully the CRTC did not crack down on us under those rulings. All right, just before we go, before we let you guys go, I have to, Ted, I have to run this story by you guys. This this may be the most ludicrous story I have heard all year. I mean, it's we're, we're getting near the end of 2021 and this one may be the best story I've heard. There is a company in China that has made, manufactured, and sells male chastity devices. Which Which, if you see the item, they look exactly like you think they would. It's a lock and clamp device, they call it. That oh, works dear. with your Bluetooth. It works on Wi-Fi with your Bluetooth. You attach it and then press a button on your phone, and clink, it locks into place. Why? Does tens it look like a fa- thousands of these? Does it look like a jockstrap? No, it looks more like the item that it's in covering. <laughs> um, but anyway, the problem with this, as they've discovered, and why this is in the news: tens of thousands of these have sold around the world. They have now discovered that if your Wi-Fi goes out, there's no manual workaround.
0: In other words, it's on for a long time. It's (laughs) on.
10: So this is like a a new-age cod piece? Is
1: that what this is? Yes, yes, except they say you might need a hacksaw to hack through the plastic covering to get in. So So now they've got some... So in the United Kingdom, some MacGyvers are trying to find some sort of workaround that involves you prying open the lid and touching batteries to the wires to try and get yourself out of this device. Can you imagine if you had to go to the hobble?
0: Right! Sin! You gotta see this! And he called the doctors over and the guy's on the table. can I hop
2: on with one comment about this Please, because uh, I feel
10: very uncomfortable.
2: <laughs> I've seen images of this device. Yes. That thing looks heavy. That's all I've got to say. I just, just can't imagine degree. that in 20... In I'm 2021, Googling this right is, now.
1: Who is buying uh, a device is going to flag like this. me for sure. <laughs> yeah. no, who, in 2021, who is buying a chastity device? Honestly, like this is something from the Middle Ages. And, I just, and and to make it high-tech, but with no escape valve, is really, you know, you're, you're taking not your life in your own hands. Oh, my. Take, <laughs> yeah.
10: I'm definitely getting an email from HR now. I
2: feel like the primary buyers of this device are people who lost bets. Well, the fact
1: that they refer to it as a lock and clamp device is something I don't want anywhere near any delicate parts of any body. The question is, what what made you think of looking for the story in the first place? Oh, I did not look this up, Ted. This is what <laughs> happens when you go down an internet rabbit hole. There's <laughs> one.
10: There's one. The first one that pops up is called the CB six thousand.
1: Well, <laughs> like. What? Sounds impressive. (laughs) It sounds impressive. You know, this company is now going to get more web hits than they've had in the last 10 years all at once from everybody who's listening. Because everyone is running to Google right now to type this up. Yes. Anyway. uh, (laughs) Thanks for this, Scott. On on the next episode of MacGyver. Uh, listen, that is our show for today. Thank you for being here. We are out of time. Will Erskine, back at the office, did an amazing job yesterday and today as I filled in locking up guests, getting people, uh, doing all the work on the board, everything else. Fantastic job by Will. Thank you to him. Thank you to you for calling all of you and listening. Have yourself an amazing Thanksgiving weekend. Enjoy your family. Enjoy the food, whatever you're going to do. Scott will be back next week. I'll be back in my regular slot. We will talk to you soon. And boom goes the dynamite.